welcome back to Brojo Online. Something's come up, which is I've created fucking tons of content over the last eight or so years. And there's a lot of stuff out there that's very helpful for specific situations. And yet it's just lost in the sheer quantity of the amount of shit that I've put out. So what I wanted to start doing is actually collating and republishing some of the better stuff. So that people can find it easily all in one place. And that's what I'm going to do today. Today I'm going to give you five of my top relationship posts. And I'm going to read them out for a podcast so you can get it all in one place. They overlap. They're not necessarily directly related to each other. But if you are a nice guy wanting to have a healthy relationship. Or you're a girl who's with a nice guy and want to make that relationship healthier then these five posts are going to help you the most. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. Okay, we're going to go in no particular order. Post number one, what women really want. (laughs) So of course, it's borderline lunacy for a man to proclaim that he knows what a woman wants. Luckily for you, I am that crazy and that egotistical, so we're going to give it a go. One thing for sure is that what most men are taught about creating a relationship is simply fucked. Manipulative strategies like pickup, seduction techniques, and abusive controlling do not create genuine loving connections. Manipulation might occasionally get you laid, but with this approach you'll eventually end up either in an insecure, unstable, and emotionally distant relationship, or simply alone and depressed. This post is not for guys who are just looking to score. If that's you, I wish you well, and I wish I could convince you that frequent, meaningless sex is probably not what you're actually looking for, but I know you have to figure that out for yourself. I'll be here waiting to help if you eventually find trying to get women has become chore-like and unsatisfying. Now for most of my 20s, I chased validation from sexual conquest, quite unsuccessfully most of the time. But even when it was working, I still felt hollow and alone. The wins only satisfied me temporarily, and then the needy urge to hunt would consume me once more. After a string of meaningless flings and one-night stands, I started thinking, I want a real connection. Let's assume you're not a wannabe master manipulator, and you'd actually like to experience a truly loving relationship at least once in your lifetime, free from bullshit and performance pressure. Let's explore why you aren't yet in a deeply satisfying, exciting, and meaningful connection. Pretty much every week, I get a handful of emails from women because of an article I wrote entitled Why Your Boyfriend Doesn't Initiate Sex. These emails are largely the same. Complaints from women about the lack of sexual interest demonstrated by their man. It seems to be a huge unspoken problem out there. For a while, I believed that lack of sexuality was the main issue. But since I've started coaching a lot of these men who were the subject of these emails, I've come to realize that the sex thing is just a symptom of a much greater problem. The fact is, men want connection too. But we're often not very skilled at creating deep connections that can satisfy us for the long term. We are trained to acquire rather than connect. We are told we need to get women rather than build a connection with them. Let's have a look at the two most significant factors that prevent men from forming deep connections. Shame and dishonesty. Shame occurs when you believe that something true about yourself is wrong or bad. 
Shame affects relationships considerably by directly limiting your ability to connect. Put simply, shame encourages dishonesty. I'm not just talking about blatant lying, though that's certainly a part of it. Every single day in your social life, you are probably restricting your level of honesty because of a massive amount of shame. You will barely notice this happening most of the time because you think it's normal. Nearly all of us are conditioned from a young age to try to be as impressive as possible. We are taught to hide our weaknesses and emphasize our strengths. We were programmed by insecure adults and peers to believe that connections are created with positive feelings and experiences. So you hide negative emotions, weaknesses, and insecurities. You've been led to believe that presenting the most perfect image of yourself possible is what creates attraction and connection. Guess what? It's all total bullshit. It was taught to you by people who didn't know how to connect. All that stuff about how you have to be funny and smart and good-looking and successful and happy all the time was an utter lie. Let me put it to you simply. How are you supposed to connect deeply with someone if you don't let them see who you really are? Who exactly are they connecting with if you're putting on a performance to impress them? It just doesn't make sense to think that hiding who you are is the way to connect with others. The worst thing is that many of you will read this and think it doesn't apply to you because you've managed to convince yourself that you are honest. That's the real tragedy. You believe your own lies. So keep listening if you're open to the possibility that you could be a bit more honest. I still haven't answered the question about what women really want. Are you ready for it? It's all about connection. The greatest gift you can give to another person has nothing to do with being impressive. It's really all about letting them into your secret world, where all of your fears and faults are hidden, and allowing them to share theirs in return. It can be as simple as completing a sentence that begins with, I've never told anyone this before. Think about how you feel when someone delivers this to you. Feels good, right? Like you're a special snowflake, the chosen one. It feels deeply significant and touching when someone shares something that they've never revealed to anyone else before. You suddenly have meaning, significance, and purpose in your life. You are here to share their secret. And it's not even relevant whether or not they've shared it with others before. What's most important is that it is a deep truth which brings you together in understanding. You both share what it means to be human. So what are you missing? Let's get more tangible and practical here. From a woman's perspective, the problem is that men generally do not talk enough. This does not mean they want a greater quantity of words to come out of your mouth. What it means is that they want to see into your inner world. They want to know what it's like to be you, from your perspective. They don't really give a shit about the minor things like your annoying boss or the footy score. They want to hear about how your mind processes emotion, how you react internally to their behavior, your philosophy and understanding on the nature of reality. Most simply, they want to know what it feels like to be you. And they cannot see any of this if you're trying to impress them. You might have convinced yourself that you're being honest, but most of the time you're just trying to manipulate them into states of happiness or attraction. Manipulation always requires dishonesty. My own story. Due to being afflicted with nice guy syndrome most of my life, my relationships were always one-sided. I would have intense feelings for someone, but could never believe that these feelings were being returned equally because I was acting the entire time. My unwillingness to lose someone meant that I would hide anything that might scare them away. Even back then, I knew I was hiding who I truly was. 
I just didn't realise that this was the cause of my problems. It felt like a curse, like I was doomed to always feel disconnected and essentially alone in a relationship. I couldn't understand what I was doing wrong, and I even turned towards pickup artistry, PUA, which is a school of manipulation and control based on building attraction. It was an intensely unsatisfying way to live. Even when I began to feel an attraction forming with a woman I liked, I knew deep down that who she was developing the attraction towards was not me. The guy she thought she was attracted to was simply an act I had created, just for her, a performance designed to steal her attention and validation. This was most definitely not how I wanted to live my life. I started to question the fundamental flaw of trying to make someone attracted to me, or trying to make people happy. Manipulation just never felt right, even in its most gentle and playful forms. What I wanted was love, one of those intensely deep, meaningful connections that you always hear about, but rarely see in real life. I wanted a partner in crime, the X Factor. As I explored these thoughts, I became intensely curious about what keeps a couple together after the honeymoon period of attraction is over. I began to identify and study what I believe to be genuinely loving couples. Make no mistake, these are rare. Very few couples I investigated showed a truly deep and meaningful connection. Even married couples I looked into showed many signs of shame, superficiality, and of having created a relationship based on fear-avoidant comfort rather than passionate love. Eventually I was able to find some that seemed to have that X factor. They were the partners in crime. Those couples that seemed to be more than just lovers. A team, totally in it together and prepared to die for each other. They would seem to communicate telepathically and knew each other inside out. They were confident and independent, yet relied on each other with a firm foundation of trust. Even at a brief glance, it was clear how they were different to the others. They were so fucking open and honest with each other that sometimes it would blow me away. They hid almost nothing from each other. They demonstrated complete shamelessness. I focused my attention on the men in these relationships and asked myself, how are they different from other men? It wasn't what I expected. In several of the relationships I explored, I witnessed some fascinating behaviours by the men, things I thought would have been deal breakers. Here are a few examples. One friend told his partner that he was going to a strip club even though he knew that she wouldn't approve, while all his friends lied to their partners about it. The partner of a girl I'm friends with opened up to her about his addiction to cannabis even though she had previously expressed disapproval about drug use. I saw men disagreeing openly with their partners on different points of view, even though they knew it would cause offence. Most significantly, I witnessed men admitting to weaknesses, fears, insecurities and confusion, and balancing all of this with accurate observations of their strengths and successes. And then it all finally clicked. What these guys did was let their partners see everything no matter what the risk. And they did so without apology. They owned what they were. They were willing to lose their partner in order to maintain their own integrity. They were eager to share their true self with their partner. This went both ways, of course. Their partners were invariably treated as equal status and accorded the same treatment. These men would listen to their partners and encourage them to share as well. In fact, they demanded this balance of investment. In all these couples, there were patterns of open honesty leading to deep vulnerability, and they would travel this path alongside each other. So you might be asking the question, should I just tell a woman that I'm all fucked up? Not exactly. Look at it this way. 
At any given time, you're going through something internally. You'll have thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations constantly. Sometimes these are pleasurable, like when you feel happy or calm. Other times these are dark and confusing, like when you feel jealousy, fear, or frustration. You can watch all of these things happen and give commentary, like observing a sports game from the sidelines. Some things you'll have shame about, for example how so many men feel hesitant to express sexual desire. When these things come up, your mind will say things like, this isn't the right time. You don't even know how you feel or what you're thinking, so it's pointless to express it. Run and hide. Don't bother, you'll just start an argument. You'll ruin her day, and so on. The key is to notice all of these excuses and then let her see your truth anyway. Be willing to lose her forever in order to maintain your integrity. Let her see all of it. And then, once you've shown her yours, ask to see hers. Balance the vulnerability and listen empathetically while she opens up in response. This is the two of you building something together, creating a real connection. Let's say you open up and the response you get is unpleasant. She disagrees, is disgusted or repulsed, or avoids sharing in return. That's fine. It simply means she's either not open right now, or she's a bad fit for you and you're wasting your time trying to build a connection with her. Use honesty to polarize the women in your life, and anyone else. Try to push people away with the shameless fucking truth. The woman who keeps coming back for more is probably your soulmate. Women don't need you to have a big dick, or a ton of money, or to be super funny, smart, or brave. They don't need you to make them feel jealous, or confused about how you feel, or needy. They just want you to be fucking real. It's the most satisfying experience you could ever hope to provide for them. Stop trying to impress her, and let her see what's really going on in that mind of yours. Okay, so that was the first one. Like I said, these are in no particular order. Some of them are very old, and some of them brand new. The next one is quite a recent one on caretaking. Caretaking, when being helpful becomes toxic. People with nice guy syndrome or people-pleasing syndrome often pride themselves on how considerate and helpful they are, even to the point of feeling resentful about not being acknowledged or rewarded justly for their kindness. One of the most painful insights I've ever had about myself is learning that my helpful niceness was actually hurting people more than it was helping, and far from serving others, it was in fact completely selfish. Yes, it is possible to be helpful, kind, generous and caring in a healthy way, Provided you meet some criteria. This is what healthy caring looks like. 1. The person has directly asked for your assistance from genuine desire for your help. 2. You aim to enable the person to solve their issues themselves with minimal assistance from you. 3. You do what's best for them rather than what feels good or makes you look good. 4. They actually cannot solve the issue without outside support. They've without doubt reached the limit of their capability. And five, you don't sacrifice your own well-being to assist them in managing theirs. So, if when you help people you have overt permission, and you coach them through it rather than doing it for them, and you refer them to experts rather than trying to be the expert, and you're willing to hurt their feelings or have them dislike you in order to best serve them, and you take care of yourself first, then you can safely assume that your help is healthy. If not you're probably caretaking. Caretaking is the term we use for controlling someone through the guise of being helpful, considerate, or kind. What looks like good intentions masks a secret desire for control, an obsession with order, 
an insistence on emotional safety, and a deep inner shame. I've created 11 key signs that you're caretaking rather than helping in a healthy way. 1. You didn't ask for permission or get directly asked for assistance. You offered or insisted simply because a person expressed an issue. For example, somebody complains about their boss and you start giving them unsolicited advice on how to confront the boss. 2. You anticipated them potentially having some sort of discomfort before any evidence even emerged and started trying to prevent it. For example, anxiously offering someone a drink because it's a hot day even though they never mentioned being thirsty. 3. You don't give them a choice in the matter. They must receive your help. For example, sneaking away to pay the bill for everyone when you're at a restaurant. 4. You don't trust them to meet their own needs or have the courage to ask for what they want, and so you treat them like a child who must be told what they want or need. For example, bringing someone sunscreen when they didn't ask for it. 5. You disrespect a no. For example, would you like a drink? Nah thanks, I'm fine. Are you sure? I can grab you a coke, no problem. No really, I'm good. Well how about a beer? etc etc. 6. You resent being unappreciated, or you don't help someone where there's no recognition in it for you. For example, not giving money to homeless people because they'll just spend it on drugs, or because no one's going to notice. 7. You put their needs above your own, and expect to be admired for your sacrifice. For example, changing plans to accommodate dropping them off somewhere, even though they could easily afford a taxi. 8. Your help is aimed at preventing or fixing emotions that you find uncomfortable. For example, trying to cheer someone up when they're sad, or trying to calm someone down when they're angry. 9. Doing what gets praised rather than what works. For example, letting someone vent about their relationship problems and reassuring them yet again, rather than confronting them on being the problem themselves. 10. Assuming someone has a problem simply because you're ashamed of it. For example, trying to get a single friend to go on a forced blind date just because you're ashamed of being single. 11. Doing it for them rather than helping them to do it themselves. For example, drawing up a budget for someone rather than referring them to a budgeting course. Caretaking disables people's problem-solving abilities. It creates codependence where you gaslight them into believing that they need your help. It enables victimhood and irresponsibility. It provokes people to become ashamed of perfectly normal and natural things, like emotions or relationship struggles. It doesn't help, it hurts. Here's a frame that can help. Imagine that people don't actually need your help, even if it appears that they do. Entertain the idea that evolution over hundreds of thousands of years has led up to humans being the most advanced problem-solving machines to ever have existed. Assume that trial and error and failure are actually incredibly helpful developmental learning experiences, and that letting people struggle emotionally is what's best for them in the long term. And ask yourself, if I wasn't interested in controlling people, or dictating how others should live, or avoiding uncomfortable emotions, or trying to be seen as a good person by others, or judging people as too weak to handle life without me, how much would I actually help other people? The answer is, fuck all. And that's what's best for them. Okay, the third post is a bit of an older one. Let's see how we go. How to create an authentic relationship. Smartphones, television, and an outdated education system are starting to take their toll on our basic ability to connect with other people. 
Most people have limited social experience. We are restricted to waiting for people to come into our lives because we lack the courage and skill to initiate connections with others. And the relationships we do have in our lives require constant maintenance because we aren't completely honest in them. If you walk down the street in any major city these days, you're unlikely to get into a conversation with anyone, despite thousands of potential opportunities. If you're at a party, you're unlikely to talk to someone there who you don't already know, unless you're introduced. These days, your closest friends are most likely workmates, school colleagues, peers in your hobby, and their partners. This means that if this small group of options doesn't contain people you can genuinely and intimately connect with, your social life will feel like it's missing something important. The pickup artist movement aimed to correct this, however, it was mostly off track. Men were taught manipulative techniques into making people like them. They would be fake and aggressively avoid rejection at all costs. This is slowly starting to change, though many of the teachers in this field still focus on avoiding rejection. For women, it's just as bad if not worse. The support out there for women to develop social skills focuses mainly on people-pleasing. Again, the theme is to avoid being disliked and rejected. It's all about winning friends and influencing people. In particular, it's about hiding femininity in a man's world instead of being proud of it. The constant theme in this limited support is to not be yourself with strangers. Not surprisingly, this leaves us all feeling stressed, fake and unfulfilled, forming relationships with people based on complete bullshit. We're all expected to know how to socialise, so it's not taught in schools, even by parents or guardians. Yet this is not a skill set we're born with. So I'd like to give some guidance on how to have authentic conversations with complete strangers, from start to finish, without trying to avoid rejection or please the other person. Initiating. The key theme throughout this whole process I'm about to share is honesty. In order to create authentic and meaningful connections with people, you must be direct and straightforward, demonstrating an accurate expression of what's going on in your head. This means starting out right. No excuses or pretense to ease into starting the conversation, and no risk avoidance strategies. Just come right out and say it. A structure you can follow to make this easier. 1. Get their attention first. Lock eyes, smile, and initiate the conversation clearly. Be unapologetic about interrupting their whatever. It doesn't have to be complex. Something like, hey, or excuse me, works just fine. Don't overthink it. 2. Explain and set expectations. Say something brief to help them understand that you are about to have a conversation. Give them time to register that you are talking to them. Something like, I just noticed you from across the room and wanted to come and say hi. Or, I don't think I've met you yet, have I? That works a treat. 3. Give value. Don't try to make them like you. Engage in a practice of giving value to people rather than trying to take from them. This could come in the form of recognition, interesting information, or even a straight-out compliment. The key here, again, is to be honest. Don't plan something to say to everyone. Make it specific to each person. Something like, I just wanted to say that I think you're absolutely gorgeous. you got such confident posture. It really caught my attention. Create a pause in between each of these three steps and to allow the other person to keep up with what you're saying. This will allow them to feel safe, because they can leave during those pauses, and it will project confidence. Transitioning into conversation. From here, it's your job to lead the conversation, but the investment should be equal from them also. You're not trying to win them over. You're simply allowing them the opportunity to talk with you. 
It's a gift, not a request. Friends talk to each other in statements. Strangers ask questions. If you want the conversation to lead to deeper investment, then talk to the person like you're already friends. Hold back nothing and don't pry for information. Instead, use statements to give information, making it easier for them to participate in the conversation. You could use what little information you have about them and make statements. A fun way to do this is to make random positive assumptions about the person. You might say something like, with that crazy scarf and colourful pants, I'm guessing you do something creative for a living. Or if you want to really be a bold social leader, venture information about yourself. A little trick I use and teach is to answer the questions you want to ask. When you're desperate to keep a conversation going, you will likely go into interview mode and barrage the poor person with tons of back-to-back questions. Instead of doing this, ask yourself the question inside your own head and then answer it out loud. So instead of asking, what are you up to today? You would end up saying something like, I'm just out meeting new people today. You've answered the question. At first this will feel weird, but watch how people react when you give them material to work with, rather than pressuring them to provide for you. Keeping the flow going. Listen to what they say and reflect it back to them. Show them that you are listening and paying attention. This does not mean pretend to be interested in what they are saying. Honesty means that if they are boring you, it's your job to change the subject or lead them somewhere more interesting. However, bear in mind that often boredom comes from not paying attention. Make sure you are focused before you judge. You'll find everyone is interesting if you dig deep enough. I follow a process that basically guarantees endless conversation that is spontaneous and almost effortless. 1. I give them back what they've said to me in an interesting or unusual way to show that I've heard them and to clarify what they're saying. So if they say something like, I'm an accountant, you can reflect with, Ah, so you're one of those guys who pays attention to detail. 2. Think about what they've said and share how it relates to you. This way you both invest equally into the conversation. After you've reflected, you might say something like, Actually, my father was an accountant, but I never ended up being any good with numbers. 3. Use what has now been shared between you to explore deeper and increase the intimacy of your investment. In the short process of reflecting and relating, you now have a massive number of options. With my accountant example, you could make a statement about your father, ask him about why he got into that job, or share a story about your own line of work, and so on. Rinse and repeat, and the conversation will start to flow. If it doesn't, then perhaps you're not a good fit. Honesty means identifying that not everyone will like you, and vice versa. This is okay, it just creates space for the next person. Creating a relationship. Authenticity in socializing is really about letting go of the desired outcome. Stop trying to get something from people. If you want an honest and intimate relationship to evolve, you need to create space instead of trying to force it to happen. This particularly applies to dating. Stop trying to make the person the one, or trying to sleep with them. Instead, just honestly express attraction when you feel it, and challenge them to invest as well. If they don't, move on. If you do truly want to see that person again at the end of your conversation, then tell them that. However, instead of trying to create a new event in your life just for them, for example going on a date, try inviting them into your world. This person has only had one conversation with you. They must be pretty impressive to earn your time again. Rather than saying, let's do dinner sometime, or even worse, can I have your number? Choose something you genuinely want them to participate in and invite them to it. 
it's so much more authentic and low pressure to say something like, you know what, I like you, you're a funny guy. Hey, this Saturday I'm going to check out this crazy new bar at the waterfront. I reckon you'd dig it. You should come along. The keys to creating and maintaining an authentic connection. 1. Don't hide anything. You are what you are. Let them either love it or hate it. If you got a fart, then fart. If you disagree with their political views, then say so. Keep it real like they are already longtime friends of yours. 2. Give rather than get. Instead of trying to get them to like you, or date you, or send referrals to you, or sleep with you, give them value instead. Free from expectation of return. You're not doing them a favour to call in later. You are giving value because that's how you roll with everyone. 3. Lead equal investment. Be the one who initiates and takes risks. For example, starting a new topic of conversation. Also make sure they are pulling their weight. Whoever is investing more is the one who feels they have something to lose. Instead of trying to keep the conversation going, think more like you are giving them the opportunity to participate. If they refuse to invest, then allow them to walk away. Silence is a powerful tool to generate more investment from them. Know the difference between honesty and being judgmental. If you think being honest will come out as blunt, harsh and mean, then you need to look closely at your own perspective. Who are you to judge? Are you really so sure that your judgment is accurate? Because if not, then it would be dishonest to say it. Try looking for the good in people and being honest about that. However, number five, maintain your boundaries. Most people are flexible with their core values when they first meet other people, in order to avoid conflict. Fuck that. If someone crosses the line, nip it in the bud early. You don't have to be aggressive, just unapologetic. They can either respect your values or leave. You don't care either way because your values serve to filter out the wrong people. Article number four, article, post, whatever the fuck they're called. The difference between a relationship and a connection. The biggest barrier to getting into a relationship is trying to get into a relationship. There is nothing more socially desperate than dating the way most people do it, searching for that relationship connection. You interview each other, you try to impress each other, try to manipulate each other into feeling attraction, and generally spend the whole time wondering and worrying about, will this go anywhere? But some people don't do it like this. They simply spend time honestly connecting with people. Sometimes this ends up becoming a relationship or a friendship, sometimes it doesn't. There's no attempt to make it happen, they don't seem to try. What's the difference? Well, the second group of people have discovered something the first group has missed. It all has to do with the difference between our perceptions of what a relationship is. What is a relationship? Think about it for a second. How do you define that word? How do you know when you're in a relationship? What are the hallmarks that prove its existence? Believe it or not, this varies wildly from one person to another. While many of us believe that our perception of what a relationship is will match our peers, it almost certainly does not. Some people believe it requires sexual exclusivity, others don't. Some people think it begins with a direct agreement of commitment, others believe it's implied by spending time together or having sex with each other. Some people think you must hide certain truths about yourself until or after a relationship is established, while others believe that you must share these truths before making a commitment. The list goes on and on, and this isn't even the important part. What's most important is trying to identify what a relationship actually is. 
You can't hold it in your hand. You can't see it, smell it, or hear it. It's like money in the bank. You believe in its existence despite there being only circumstantial evidence. A relationship has no physical form. You believe that a relationship exists when you experience certain things. Maybe it's when you agree to be girlfriend and boyfriend, or maybe it's when you're having sex. Maybe it's when your partner expresses attraction toward you. Maybe it's the marriage license. And then there are the experiences that tell you the relationship no longer exists. Maybe it's your partner being caught cheating or telling you that they want to break up. Maybe it's your partner dying. Maybe it's waking up one morning and not feeling love anymore. And yet none of these signs show you what a relationship really is. And that's because of a simple matrix-style truth. There is no relationship. A relationship is simply the illusion that another person will continue to obey the rules you've attached to your connection with them. I'm going to say that again, listen carefully. A relationship is the illusion that another person will continue to obey the rules you've attached to your connection with them. When you successfully create an illusion in your mind that they will still love you tomorrow, still want to be your loyal partner tomorrow, and still be alive tomorrow, you tell yourself that you're in a relationship. When you're unable to convince yourself of this illusion, the relationship is over. All those rules you made up about what a relationship consists of are what you desperately chase when you're dating. You tried your best to manipulate and maneuver your potential mate into obeying these rules, and you panic when they don't. Even after they've committed to you, the fun of maintaining a relationship is emotionally draining. You try to prevent them from losing love, cheating, or dying, because you want to keep the relationship. Whenever something threatens the illusion, you lose sleep. No wonder dating isn't working out well for you. You're not trying to connect with someone. You're trying to get and keep an asset, an ultimately impossible task. Why do I say impossible? Because no relationship with another person can last forever. At the very least, one of you is going to die first. And that's the best way it can end. That's the definition of the most successful relationship. Are you so sure that this is what you want? This is what you want to chase? Let's look at an alternative approach. What is a connection? We all want connection in a relationship. A connection has no rules. There's no expectation of tomorrow. There's no agreement or commitment. You don't have to speak or have sex. They don't even have to stay alive. You can feel it when you make thrilling eye contact with an attractive stranger. You can feel it when you hold your best friend's newborn baby for the first time. You can feel it when you're deep in a heart-to-heart conversation with your closest friend. And you can also feel it when you sit contentedly on top of a mountain, watching a beautiful sunset, with no observable proof whatsoever that any other humans even exist. So what does connection mean in a relationship? Connection can survive the end of a relationship. You can still feel connected to a loved one who died many years ago. You can feel connected to someone who isn't in the same room, or whom you haven't spoken to for years. Connection does not require any obedience or even action of any kind from another person. I believe people begin their dating experiences by searching for a connection, but get confused into seeking a relationship instead. As one of my clients identified with me yesterday, we learn to accept the belief that a relationship creates and guarantees the feeling of connection. We mistakenly see relationships as the source of connection. Connection is what we really want. We don't want to be in a shitty relationship, an unloving relationship, right? Therefore, a relationship by itself is not good enough. 
we want to feel connected and have come to believe relationship is how we can consistently achieve this despite evidence that a connection can be experienced even when all by yourself. When you look at healthy couples you'll see clearly that the connection was what created the relationship. A relationship is a consequence of a connection. And you'll know from experience that a connection cannot be forced by just creating a relationship. You know you can manipulate someone into being your friend or partner without ever feeling genuinely connected to them. Why seeking a relationship drives it away. When you're trying to get a relationship, you ruin your chance at a real connection. You're needy, greedy, desperate, false, manic. You hide the worst parts of yourself while exaggerating or misrepresenting your strengths, and bizarrely you often hide your true feelings toward the other person. You play games, manipulate and trick. You ignore the other person because your attention is completely focused on the strategy in your head, part of which is you trying to convince yourself that you're not manipulative. Compare this to when you're inviting someone to connect with you. No games, no pickup techniques, no bullshit, no deception. You can't connect with a false representation, so you know must so you know you must represent yourself as boldly, vulnerably, and accurately as possible. To ensure they're a good fit for you, you must also engage in empathy and acceptance, listening carefully to them to allow their truth to come out. There's no strategy, just openness to experience. There's no definition of success or failure, just the experiment, the invitation to explore each other. In your attempts to get into a relationship, you prevent someone from being able to connect with you. You hide what they could connect with, and you ignore and judge what you could be appreciating in them. You think this is the best way to do it because you believe that once you get into a relationship, you'll be able to source endless feelings of connection. But will you? Do relationships work when they're started on false pretenses? I'd suggest the ridiculously high divorce rates in Western countries are testament to the issue of people trying to get into a relationship. I also reckon this is why arranged marriages are so statistically successful. The participants aren't trying to keep the relationship because they have no choice in the matter. So they just focus on trying to connect to make the relationship enjoyable. How do you switch to seeking connection? In a word, honesty. The key difference between seeking a connection versus seeking a relationship is strategy. Social strategies are always less than fully honest. Connection is free from strategy. You're willing to lose the person because there is no relationship to be maintained. There's nothing to lose. You're either connected truthfully or you're not. No strategy can support truthful connection. Only honesty and respect can do that. Express yourself honestly, then give them respectful space and encouragement to do the same. You strategically chase a relationship because you're trying to remove loneliness. But loneliness is caused by you rejecting yourself. You know this because you can still feel lonely around other people. Connection is not about someone else liking you. Connection is you liking you. When that happens, there is no more loneliness. And how is this achieved? By valuing your honesty more than you value any relationship with another person. You impress yourself with honesty to create a sense of connection. You've had the power all along. For me, it all changed when I made a special commitment to myself. After a decade of desperately and unsuccessfully seeking a partner, I decided to stop trying. I made a powerful commitment to accept being single for the rest of my life. The relationship I'd focus on would be the relationship I had with myself, the only relationship that was guaranteed to last for my entire life. The effects were immediate. Suddenly, dating was no longer a desperate, anxiety-ridden experience. 
I no longer felt any pressure to keep other people in my life. It didn't matter if they didn't text me back, or didn't want to sleep with me, or didn't want to commit to exclusivity. I still dated, if you can still call it that, because I liked exploring connections. I could offer all these things, but I did so merely to clarify our connection. If they rejected me, it simply meant that uh, it was time to focus on connecting more with someone else, or just be by myself. There was no need to chase. I mean, think about it, whatever you chase will run away from you. When I wrote this post, I was in a long-term relationship for the first time in over a decade with a girl I feel deeply connected to whom I can be myself around without restriction. Remember, the right person for you won't require any manipulation. Your pure honesty will satisfy them. You don't even need to believe in yourself to satisfy another person. Anyone less than this is a waste of your time. Commit to being single forever if that's what it takes to build the relationship with yourself. And don't do this to trick yourself into reducing neediness. This is not a strategy to get a relationship. Just let go of strategy entirely and connect. Alright. Final post, number five. This one's kind of for the ladies. Nice guys and the women who enable them. First and foremost, I will not be blaming women or men for the nice guy syndrome phenomenon. Mostly because I believe blame is a ridiculous and impossible notion based on cause and effect bias, and also because blame will not solve this issue or any other. Like crime, nice guy syndrome is a detrimental cultural issue that affects all of society, and we are all responsible for dealing with it. What is the issue? For those of you who have not read Dr. Robert Glover's masterpiece, No More Mr. Nice Guy, nice guy syndrome describes a cultural and psychological epidemic that grew in the last few decades, mostly due to a misguided reaction to the feminist movement and underrepresentation of males in child-raising roles. Nice guy syndrome is a subspecies of the overall psychological concept of people-pleasing and approval-seeking. A nice guy is a person, usually a man, who is consistently subservient, passive, and indirect. Due to shame about sexuality, masculinity, and not being good enough, nice guys struggle with conflict, fear rejection, and try to manage the emotions of people around them. They are unconsciously manipulative in order to avoid social disapproval. They have massive guilt attached to anything that could lead, in their minds, to disapproval, which causes them to be almost entirely fake in their persona. For straight guys, this is mostly emphasized in the presence of women, particularly women they are attracted to. Often, these women will be the last to realize that this is happening. I should know. I was one. A nice guy, I mean, not a woman. While it is up to the nice guy to sort out his own issues, he is likely to be surrounded by females who unwittingly enable his condition. Mostly these are women who just have no idea about what is happening and are just happy to have a male friend. Other times it's done intentionally by malicious or psychopathic women who like to use these poor bastards. So this post is for any woman who has a platonic male friend in their lives. This friend may be legitimately connected with you, or he may be a nice guy suffering from toxic fear-based motives. I'd like to help you figure out which one he is. So let's have a look at some of the warning signs that your guy friend has nice guy syndrome. We're going to go through a checklist. If your friend has a concerning number of these traits, he doesn't need to have all of them to be a nice guy, then you've got a problem. Your relationship is probably unhealthy, and by continuing it, you are enabling an unhelpful pattern of behavior that will rule his entire life. Take a deep breath, some of these are going to sting. 1. 
You are both single, and there is no obvious reason that he should not be at least a little bit attracted to you. Yet he has never made a clear, honest, and direct attempt to engage with you sexually. Or, if he has made a move and been rejected, he seems eager to continue the friendship platonically. 2. He engages in consistent people-pleasing and approval-seeking behaviours. 3. He goes out of his way to make sure things go well for you and ensure that you are happy. Sacrificing his own needs to prioritise yours, which you may not realise is happening, often to the point where it makes you uncomfortable. 4. It's rare for him to disagree with you, or if he does and you react with resistance, he is likely to change his point of view to suit yours, and simply escape from any potential confrontation. Conversely, he may often try to use logic to change your mood, arguing facts to make you feel better. He will demonstrate an inability to allow you to be upset or have problems. He will always try to fix things. 5. He complains about his love life and externalizes the blame. For example, the girls who want me are unattractive and the girls I want aren't attracted to me. He is critical of women for dating bad boys and lacks basic understanding of what is attractive for straight women. 6. He contacts you often, probably more than most partners you've ever had, even though he's not your partner. If you look closely, you'll often see consistent clinginess and neediness combined with attention-seeking behavior. For example, sulking quietly while snatching glances at you to see if you've noticed. 7. He often demonstrates a victim mindset, where things in his life that he doesn't like seem to be out of his control. 8. He appears to be emotionally unfazed or cold, overly logical and rational, and eager to appear like he does not have any problems he cannot handle. He may appear to have no obvious weaknesses. When he is feeling emotional, the most likely form it will take is sulking and passive-aggressive manipulation. For example, martyrdom, guilt-tripping, hinting, and subtlety. 9. He is visibly uncomfortable with compliments and will deflect them, like, oh, it was mostly luck. When he seeks to please, he is confusingly shameful about being rewarded for his actions. 10. He's highly judgmental while seemingly oblivious to being this way. This is often expressed through the theme that other people, particularly other guys, are jerks, selfish, or uncaring. He will have a strong stance against unfairness, which will usually be related to a belief about how the universe should be treating him much better because he's such a good guy. 11. He calls himself a nice guy. 12. He lacks masculinity in general, but this is not to be confused with femininity. While being feminine is receptive, nice guys are passive. They sit around waiting for things to come to them, with no attempted action, risk-taking, or leadership. 13. Nearly every nice guy I've spoken to admits to lacking boundaries. You can walk all over them without them holding you to account. They might complain initially, but you'll get away with doing it again and again. He will not end the friendship or do anything else to force you to respect his boundaries. 14. Perfectionism. High likelihood of stress, though this will be carefully hidden. Look for physical symptoms like bags under the eyes and childlike irritability and burnout. This varies though. Some nice guys are overachievers, while others completely fly under the radar. Some like to be the centre of attention, like the class clown, while others avoid being noticed. Both types have the same motive, avoided disapproval. 15. Difficulty verbalising emotion, particularly dark emotions like confusion, hatred, and most of all, anger. The nice guy will either avoid situations that lead to those emotions, or react like a child with tantrums. 
He will struggle to articulate how he feels beyond vague words like good or shit. 16. He gets massively ashamed or panicky when he believes that he has disappointed someone, or has someone believe that he is not good at something. When this happens, his main focus becomes fixing it. And there's a couple of other points for those of you in a sexual relationship with a nice guy. These are some things to look out for. 1. He never initiates sex unless he gets a clear green light, or he's just passive about sex, like he waits for you to make a move. 2. During sex, he is seriously fixated on your enjoyment instead of mutual connection and pleasure, and will probably show an unusual attachment to giving oral sex. And 3. Your sex life dies over time and lacks spontaneity or playfulness. So how do women enable nice guys? Nearly every remotely attractive and social woman I've ever known has an orbiter or two, a nice guy who hangs around them. Some women are aware of it, most are seemingly oblivious to this truth. After I reformed myself, a work that's always in progress, I was actually able to meet up with some of the women who had been my so-called friend when I was a nice guy. I was finally able to have candid and honest discussions with them about what it was like from both sides of the story. This is how I started to learn that they were mostly oblivious to my condition. Let's start with the obvious. A platonic, straight male friend who genuinely has no sexual interest in you is rare. Your friend is unlikely to be the exception. Unless he has a partner, is your relative, or there is some obvious reason he should not find you attractive, e.g. some massive age difference, and he doesn't at least flirt with you, then odds are he is hiding attraction for you. The first way women enable toxic nice guy behavior is simply by being unaware of it. So they allow the so-called friendship to develop intimately. Girls will think the guy is not attracted to them, or not interested in pursuing them. The opposite is true. Odds are he fantasizes about you multiple times per day, and seethes with hidden frustration about how nothing sexual is happening between you two. Nice guy friendships with women are usually one-sided. The guy will become your personal counselor, mentor, assistant, and you may not even be aware of how unbalanced the relationship is. Are you listening to his problems too, and is he sharing his life struggles as much as you are? Do you give each other equal status and support? Do you prioritize his needs as much as he does yours, and initiate contact with each other equally? If the answer is no to any of these, then the investment level in the relationship is out of whack. Basically, he's giving you everything he's got and getting nothing back, in his mind anyway. He's been conditioned to consider this to be a normal female-male relationship, so he probably won't identify anything wrong with it, despite massive frustration that he won't even admit to himself half the time. He sees women as authority figures who outrank him and will behave accordingly. The most unhelpful thing women do is convince themselves that the friendship is healthy. They're often grateful to finally have a male friend they can talk to. I'm going to have to kill that dream here, I'm afraid. Make no mistake... Most men are not built and trained for connecting in the way that women do with each other. When men do it, it's usually either an act or it's because they do not speak to other guys very often. When you want a deep emotional discussion without focus on solving problems, then talk to your girlfriends. Very few healthy males are able to do this honestly. He is not your friend. He is secretly crushing on you and dreams of a romantic connection while suffering through the friendship in the hope that it will become something more one day. While you're enjoying yourself, he is in pain. This pain is ruining his fucking life, but he cannot help but cling to it. His only hope is for you to end it. A few women unfortunately choose to capitalize on this arrangement. 
They recognize that the man is attracted to them, and use careful teasers to take advantage of his weak nature. They'll string the man along with maybe-one-day type promises, and rare drunken make-out sessions, and he will become their slave, therapist, and personal shopper. To those few women out there knowingly doing this, please know that I have nothing but contempt for your behavior. You are horrible. To you others, the majority who simply don't know better or struggle to let go of the friendship, I'd like to offer you some advice. How you can save your nice guy friend. Firstly, you need to be willing to lose the friendship, possibly forever. It's the only chance you'll have at any real and healthy connection with him in the longer run. I can now be friends with women in a healthy way, but I had to disconnect with them entirely first. I had to reset what women meant to me before I could engage with them without toxic motives. Nice guy syndrome is something a guy needs to work on with the support of other guys. While women can of course be masculine and support masculinity, part of the syndrome is worshipping and idolising women, which means having a female supporter, therapist, coach or teacher will probably confuse the issue. Nice guys have been raised and controlled by women their entire lives and often lack healthy male role models. It's not another woman that they need. Overcoming nice guy syndrome is about learning to accept and use the masculine force. Nice guys are mostly passive and a little feminine, with almost no true raw masculinity. They will not be able to welcome their receptive nurturing feminine side until they have sorted out their beef with masculinity. So to finish up, here are a number of resources and ideas that can support your nice guy friend. Here's what I recommend. Get him a copy of the book No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. Send him my podcast on overcoming nice guy syndrome, which you can find on SoundCloud. Demand that he stand up for himself and call him out on all nice guy behaviors. When he attempts masculine behavior, encourage him strongly, even if he makes a mess of it. Get him to join Brojo, or encourage him to find a similar resource. Avoid nurturing focused men's groups, as these will likely aggravate and validate his nice guy syndrome. He basically needs some man training and masculinity first, and he can work on the nurturing stuff if he needs to later. And if you know of a confident, ballsy guy who does well socially and doesn't seem to give a fuck what others think of him, petition him to support your nice guy friend. Nice guys are often intimidated by powerful men until they get to hang out with them and see that they're not a threat. Once that happens, your nice guy will become obsessed with having more powerful male role models. And that's it. Those are the five, I don't know, top posts. Five ones I could be bothered finding that I think are most helpful to forming healthy connections and relationships all together in one easy-to-digest podcast. And of course, if you really want to take things to the next level with your relationships, get in touch for some coaching, dan at brojo.org. My voice is giving out, so I'm going to stop now. I'll see you next time. Yo. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. 